Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field. Then together, we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're chatting about designing a holistic approach to work and life. I'll be joined by Jai Chakrabarty, an author and technologist whose article, Embracing the Whole You, You Are More Than Your Job, for Fast Company, details his career shift after resigning from his role as a technologist to pursue writing. Then later on, Jai and I will chat with Dr. Melissa Steech, a workplace well-being knowledge lead at Miller Knoll, where she shares research insights to support the ergonomic and well-being needs of organizations by focusing on their most important asset, people. Together, they'll talk about how to create a holistic approach towards work and life. But first, some news from the Design Museum, our 2022 annual meeting. It's a virtual event on February 15th from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern. This is a free community event and an opportunity to look back on 2021 at the museum and everything we did. And probably more importantly, look forward to what's coming up in 2022 in terms of initiatives, like our upcoming Design Museum Week, our exhibitions. We have a book project coming out this year. There's lots of amazing stuff going on and ways for you to get involved. You'll get to meet our staff, our board, and our council in different breakout sessions. And like I said, explore ways to get involved in our mission to bring the transformative power of design everywhere. So check it out. It's February 15th from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and you'll see a link right on the homepage to register. And with that, on to this week's topic. In Jai Chakrabarty's article for Fast Company, Embracing the Whole You, You Are More Than Your Job, Jai talks about the experience of quitting his role as a technologist to pursue his MFA in creative writing. He writes, there is no linear life. At least I haven't found one I'd wish to live. Rather, there are the meandering paths, all the pursuits of beauty that reward us with their own vistas of the world underneath. I'm joined by the author of this quote and my guest co-host this week, Jai Chakrabarty, to talk more about his work. Jai is a computer scientist and the author of the novel, A Play for the End of the World, and forthcoming story collection, A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness. That's coming out in 2023. His debut novel, A Play for the End of the World, was published by Knopf and included in Oprah's Best Books for the Fall. Jai's short fiction has appeared in numerous journals and has been anthologized in the O. Henry Prize Stories, the Best American Short Stories, and awarded a Pushcart Prize. His nonfiction has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Writer's Digest, Burfra, and Lit Hub. When not authoring, Jai continues to write code. Jai, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you because I love interesting career stories. I will share, I had a whole career as industrial designer designing consumer electronics. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to start a nonprofit museum and just leave that all behind. So could we start by just hearing a little bit of your story? I guess maybe the impetus for the article. Sure. And now I'm so curious to learn more about yours, <laughs> of course. But, you know, the impetus for the article for me is uh, now in the article I talk about in 2010, I had resigned from a job. And when I'd resigned, you know, even though I had a good relationship with my manager at the time, 
I wasn't really truthful about why I was leaving. And that always just bothered me that like, you know, why was it that I couldn't come out and just be really direct and clear about, hey, I'm leaving my corporate job to pursue an MFA in creative writing. Why was that so incredibly difficult for me that I allowed a series of uh, mistruths to perpetuate and people to find their own, you know, version of whatever truth that they thought was accurate? And so I wanted to write that article because if it was difficult for me, I thought maybe it was difficult for a few other people out there. And to encourage them to start to share more about themselves, you know, and what I've learned in my own life and my own career is that the more that I share from all those different rooms of myself, the more authentically I can be a leader, the more authentically I can contribute to the work that I'm doing, and the more that I can connect to the people around me. So those were, those were all things that felt relevant to share more broadly. Oh, yeah. And you're bringing me, I'm having flashbacks to when I told my boss. <laughs> and of course, I didn't say, hey, Mike, I'm leaving this amazing job to start a nonprofit museum. I concocted, right, a, <laughs> a whole narrative, right? And almost, I think the narrative was also for myself, right? I mean, backing up even before that sort of like moment in your job, like how did you even convince yourself that you wanted to make this change, right? You're really the, you're the first customer of this idea. <laughs> the first customer. I love that. Well, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, in my professional career, I've thought about design thinking and implemented design thinking in my projects a lot. And something that stands out for me is this focus on empathy and how in those processes, we can bring a lot of empathy to bear on our users and really ask those clarifying questions and challenge those assumptions. And in a way, it's easy for us to do that because we have, we have a little bit of narrative distance, right, from our users typically. And with ourselves, I think it's much easier, but I think those techniques are just as valuable. And so when I did that kind of soul searching and figuring out, well, what does a meaningful life look like for me, it involved a clear commitment to my sense as an artist. And, you know, this trajectory of being an artist didn't invalidate or really challenge the work and the achievements that I had as a computer scientist or engineering leader. That took me a while to understand, but really coming to terms with the fact that, you know, this my life as an artist is important to me and, and worthy of time and attention. I think a lot about this phrase, work-life balance, <laughs> and how, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but it just seems so impossible to do if like the work side is not tied in. I mean, we're, we kind of live in the era of like side hustles and side projects. And um, I mean, for the museum, the museum was a side project for me for years. And I could never achieve that work-life balance, maybe still can't. But man, I got a hell of a lot closer when I decided that like this was the meaningful thing that I wanted to spend my time on. Did you feel some balance as you made this transition or maybe a little bit after you made the, the, the switch? 
Sure. You know, I think a lot about um, the Sabbath and sabbaticals, you know, like we do a tech Sabbath in our family every, um, every Friday night. And I think it's really important to take these sabbaticals from whatever it is that we are spending so many of our days, months, years doing, and to then be able to reframe and get out of that headspace into potentially another one. So the sabbatical, I think, is an important place to find that meaningfulness, right? And so I think for anyone who is kind of struggling to figure out, well, where would you find your joy or, you know, is confused about what their curiosities might be. I think a sabbatical is a really, really good place to start. Um, and in the way in which, you know, I have a six-year-old at, at home and he has just a very organic sense of play, you know, like if we have an afternoon together, he just will know what to do. I mean, he's going to experiment. He's going to try things until he finds something that is really pleasurable and enjoyable for him. And so I think like the sabbatical is a really good vehicle to do that same kind of thing. And for me with my MFA, when I wasn't working at all, it served as that kind of sabbatical because I took a you know complete break from my previous professional life and was able to just fully tune in and see what parts parts of my mind and body really reacted well to the to the new moment. You're striking me that we're in this sort of like great resignation moment. And that's really labeling it from like the employer's perspective. Isn't this also like the great sabbatical <laughs> yes. moment when like everyone's deciding like I need some time and I'm going to take it. Right. And so you can try to find what your next step is. Like the pandemic maybe is that chance. Totally. And I, I think what progressive companies and compassionate managers can do is figure out ways to support employees to find out what those passions are within the construct of their sort of like pre-existing you know, jobscapes, if you will. So, I, you know, I also don't think it has to be all or nothing. Right. I, I, you know, I, I, I think that's very important to me as well, that I think I, I have been a writer since I was a little kid. I've been writing, you know, I was writing stories long before I had that conversation with my boss. And so for me, there were many, many small moments, many, many sabbaticals that led to that longer you know, year-long sabbatical. And so I think creating space for those breaks, I think, is just as important. And I think that's something that we in our workplaces can can do more of, right? So typically, we might talk about development plans or what do you want to do with your career here at Company X. But of course, the question is, what do we want to do with our lives? And there's going to be a Venn diagram there. It's not going to be a perfect Venn diagram. And in those ways in which the work that we are doing at our current job can support the larger trajectory of our, of our passions, our joys, I think that's really relevant to bring in to development conversation. I don't see that happening as much, but I do, I do see it in some pockets and I'm encouraged. I'm curious if you're able to combine sort of your technology and coding 
in your current work. I, my wife's another one of these transition makers. She was a civil engineer for years at the EPA and then went got her MFA in ceramics and now she's a ceramic artist. But you can see the engineering in her artwork. So I'm curious if you're able to kind of blend those things in your work. I love people who have, you know, these crossover talents because my theory is that we all have yes. <laughs> crossover talents, you know, that, that we're, you know, we might be seen as a minority case, but in, in, in reality, I think we all are able to have these engineering mindsets when we want to, and also these artistic sensibilities when we want to, and, you know, as far as how my kind of like uh, engineering mindset affects my writing life. I will say it informs my sense of revision. So I, I'm, I'm a writer who writes without outline. I'm really feeling my way through. I'm trying to get to know my characters and really trying to experience the world through them. But then when I sit down for revision, that's a much more structured process and. And there I can tease apart all the scenes, the different beats, what's happening, how people are connected to each other, and kind of use all those techniques that I learned in you know, my engineering classes to, to be able to find a method through the madness effectively. So, so yeah, I do think that most of us are able to use those skills in, in these crossover professions. Yeah, totally. Do you think that des design process can be used to help someone, I mean, design their life and like help? I mean, design just about right, making decisions and choices in a row, right? Can the process be used inward to ourselves? Totally. Well, I, you know, uh, so in, in my work, I interact a lot with user researchers and I think that a great process to try with ourselves is to imagine Imagine us interviewing ourselves, you know, as if we were doing user research and really kind of getting to the pain points, if you will, and, and what would lead to delight and, and having that, you know, sense of distance a little bit as we're, as we're doing it. And, and then I think we can cross check it, right? So if we create an interview script with, for ourselves, we can share it with our friends and say, Hey, do you think I'm being truthful here? Or are there questions that I'm missing, you know? So, you know, one of the things I love about the, the, my corporate life is that I get to work in teams. And that's something that's really hard to do as a writer or to do with any kind of introspection about yourself, right? But I think we can start to use some of those techniques. So like the, um, you know, the working world, the retrospective is, is very common. And, but what if we were to do retrospectives with our absolutely close circle of friends or with our life partners and say, hey, you know, how do you think this went? And really have those deep conversations, which I have found incredibly useful in my own life. And I, and I would love to see more of it, you know, in, in the broader world. Very cool. This has been a great conversation and we'll continue it. So thank you, Jai. Thank you so much. Yeah, listeners, to see more of Jai's work, visit jaichakrabarty.com. We'll post a link and read his book, A Play for the End of the World. Stick around and we'll bring Dr. Melissa Steech into the conversation after a quick break. 
If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back. And we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Melissa Steech. Melissa is an award-winning artist and best-selling author, became an industrial organizational psychologist in order to make work well. As part of Miller Knoll's Workplace Performance Network, Melissa consults with business leaders on how to leverage macroergonomics and workplace well-being to positively impact team dynamics and business strategy. Her upcoming book, the Intangible Environment explores the unseen elements of workplace well-being. And she is part of Design Museum Everywhere's Council. So thank you for that. We love that. Melissa helps organizations develop cultures that enhance, empower, and engage their employees for the betterment of everyone. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sam. Wonderful to have you. Jai and I are excited to chat. I loved your talk at our Workplace Innovation Summit. That was what, December of 2020? Yeah. And thought a lot about it. Kind of start there. I, let's have our listeners a little, little bit more about sort of your holistic view on workplace well-being. Like, what's the current framework? What are workplaces doing right? Well, I will start with by, you know, just, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but you know that I, I learned about the conference, your workplace conference last year through a, a mutual friend who um, serves with the museum. And it was last minute. I got in, I met you, just loved everything about your vision and, and all of that. And then I was putting together this presentation and I felt very torn between, do I do something that's corporately standard and represent my company or do I do me? And all of the things that I'm curious about and I'm passionate about and purposeful about and trust that it will serve both my organization and me well, right? And anyone and obviously the people who are listening, I scrapped the first presentation that I was going to do and I put together the one that I did for you literally maybe 45 minutes before. And I just thought, I kept coming to me. I was like, I don't want this to be about pictures. I don't want this to be about strategy. I don't want this to be about processes. There are people all day long who can talk about that so much better than me. What is it that I feel is provocative in the sense of what we all think about and maybe don't say, or what perhaps we all feel, but don't express. So that is what I feel is changing somewhat about work especially in a job market that is so hot where things are avenues are opening up where you know people that i know well who've had the standard day-to-day -day job and they enjoyed it okay but it wasn't really fulfilling them they didn't really feel like it was that job was their megaphone for life for living life at its fullest and its and its best and they're starting their own businesses and they're doing well 
you know, or they're going to work for someplace else for less money, but they have more autonomy or they work even harder, but they really love what they do. And so I feel that organizations are having to get with it. And it's almost like follow the talent where I feel like before it was the other way around, you know, here's what we can do for you talent. And now it's like in a sense of you'll produce for us in the way that we want. And now it's more like, here's what we can do for you, for you to produce in the way that you're passionate about. And we're going to make that productive for the company. Yeah, Jai and I were talking. I think we coined a new term, Jai, the, the great sabbatical versus the great resignation. Some folks may never in their entire career have taken a pause to even wonder and reflect on what kind of makes them feel alive. Like you said, what's their megaphone to the world? And I'm curious because we were literally just chatting about it. If, you, if you've seen companies be able to actually create that space and align those things a little bit better, because you're right, it's, things are changing so quickly, it feels like, and we need some examples of folks doing it right. I think it's changing rapidly. I think it's difficult sometimes with the really large organizations because once you get past a certain employee count, it becomes so difficult to have an intimate relationship with each employee. I think it's just structurally impossible to be responsible to thousands of employees and yet still be intimate with all of them. And I think there are some trying. I think that there are companies that are really trying. Um, I think Miller Knoll, and I know I'm biased, but I think we're a good example of that. There is a move toward peer coaching where everyone within the organization, layer by layer, is getting coached on how to be a coach, how to help other people do their own best thinkings, whether that's a manager from a top-down perspective or peer-to-peer, -peer. and more and more um, managers are being trained to be coaches. There is a move toward developing a culture that is one of mutual respect and encouragement um, that I think allows everyone to engage because everyone gets to work through their strengths that way. Because Jai is going to be really great at something I'm just, I have no patience for. You know, and Sam's going to be really passionate about something that Jai and I can't even care to pronounce because we're like, whatever, you know, so <laughs> it gives everybody space to really shine. Maybe that's the, the trick. Maybe space is really the I'm thinking about I don't know if Google still does this, but I remember reading about how Google would allow their employees like one day a week, right? 20 percent of their time to work on whatever project they wanted and Something probably interesting happens when you allow that space and people are still at Google that like didn't like Gmail came out of that, right? Someone was like working on an email idea and they're like, hey, I'm noodling on this in my 20% time and maybe it's a business idea. So I don't know. Is that the trick, Jai? <laughs> is it creating some space for people to have these moments? Otherwise, we're, aren't we just like, you know, day to day? I think the space is really, really important. But I wonder if we could go back a beat to what you were talking about, Belissa, and that moment when you were revising your presentation and you decided that, you know, you were going to do something that felt more authentic to you and you were going to trust yourself. And I love that word, trust. And it, it seems to me a lot of people can struggle with that self-trust with that self-confidence. So can you talk about like what allowed you to find the sense of courage to be able to take your own path there and to 
and to then, um, you know, put that presentation forward that felt more authentic to you? I don't know that I have a, a formula because I can, I can doubt and I can twist and turn. What I've learned about myself personally is that when push comes to shove, there is something in me that will just always choose the authentic path, even if I'm afraid that I might lose my job or I'm afraid that I, I might blow something up there and because there's something in me. I, I do. I think I have the confidence because there are a lot of things that maybe I'm not so confident about, but I do have a, a confidence in my own integrity. And perhaps that's it. I have a confidence that whatever I do, even if it's la last minute, you know, Hail Mary back against the wall, it's always coming from a place of wanting to give and not take of wanting to just show up and be my my best self for whatever gets put out in the ether. So it scares me and, but I it's and I've always been this way. Now, that said, I think that if we could develop a culture where we focus less on mastering every single tiny little task or skill and we worked more on mastering being intimate with what your own what your North Star is, we'd probably have a lot more confidence in everything that we do, even if we make a mistake, because the mistake is part of the learning process. Mm. And do you think it's a teachable, coachable skill? I do. I think, though, it requires that everyone show up and be vulnerable. I, and I think this is something that Brene Brown's work has really brought to the forefront because I feel like a lot of what researchers do is that we design research models and create hypotheses to basically prove what our forefathers and foremothers have been saying all along, like the truisms that exist throughout time in every culture. We just develop these really cool ways, you know, to talk about and research shows that this is this is what you need. So I think that if we could create a culture where we allow people to make mistakes, responsible mistakes, to be honest responsibly, to put themselves out there responsibly, because I think that's an important caveat, um, I think that we could have more confidence. So yes, I do think that it's it's teachable and coachable. And I'm curious, as you have been rolling out this program of everyone becomes a coach, are you seeing also effects on their personal lives? I mean, a lot of this conversation has been the bleed through between our professional lives and personal lives. Are, are you seeing people having perhaps perspectives that they're coming back and sharing with you about, you know, deeper levels of introspection or how they're thinking about their larger North Stars? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to be very, very clear. So this is not um, this is not my brainchild. I um, was fortunate enough to be part of the first cohort to be coached and then now helping with coaching. But the woman who um, brought this to our organization within she's within the company, this has been a baby of hers forever because she learned how to be a coach and she just saw the transformative uh, powers of it. And she wanted to um, bring it to the rest of the organization. So I just want to be sure that um, I'm not taking credit for her vision. And I've been the recipient and I've seen the differences in my own um, 
life uh, personally, and I've had people in my cohort and now other people who I'm coaching through the program um, just talk about how they they get along now with their teenagers. Who gets along with their teenage kids anymore? I mean, I don't know, ever. <laughs> I mean, yes, but I mean, I'm being a little flippant, but you know, the teenage years and- No, I've actually heard that same feedback from folks who have ha- made some of these changes in the workplace. Then they're like, oh, then I bring it home. And I'm like, oh, I'm just getting along with my family even better. <laughs> Let's talk about those kind of combined pursuits. You're an artist, Melissa, and I'm curious how you get to, if you get to kind of combine the art, the painting and industrial organizational psychology you know, together. I do. So for me, I get a, I have a lot of creative uh, outlet at my own, at my day job at Miller Knoll, you know, being that I have so much autonomy and I bring a lot of my I mean, I know it sounds dorky, but sometimes just putting together like a PowerPoint that's really pretty and like, like the one, so like the presentation I loved, I had never seen a PowerPoint that was just all white with just black font, like just the entire 15 minutes. That for me was a creative, I was It was different than everything else and got everyone's attention. Right. It was, <laughs> it was very intentional, right? The visual aspect. So I exercise it all the time, but in my own work, what I really um, love to do is, in my mind, having gone to art school for as long as I worked on getting a PhD, is that there is a pro- the two things are the same. There is the white space. There's all this stuff you know. There's all this stuff that exists in the world. There's the zeitgeist. And then every now and again, you get this little insight into like some white space or what we might call blue water or whatever. And you go, I wonder if. And then you start to kind of work backwards from what you know, and you create this hypothesis, and then you don't set out to to prove anything. You set out to disprove it, right? And you just create. You don't know, again, going back to that word of trust, you don't know that what you're going to do is going to be good or well-liked or well-received or pretty or what, depending on the medium. But you just know that there's something that can can contribute to that space. And so- what started to dawn on me, because I've always been very artistic, but also very academic. I loved school. I love learning stuff. I love like being challenged by hard topics. I cried all through math and I still kept enrolling in math, you know, just all that stuff. Um, but one day it dawned on me, like, why do research outcomes always have to be only in a journal or in a book? Why can't it be a gallery exhibit? Like, why can't some of these research outcomes be communicated or lead to a series of paintings or um, a book that's a beautiful coffee table book or, you know, it or artifacts, you know, when I say artifacts, like, you know, things that we use in our day to day, because I was always, I remember in art school, my professors would laugh and they're like, you know, your journal, because we'd have to show our sketchbooks every week. And it, for me, it was always like a bunch of sentences and some hieroglyphics. And they were like, how the hell are you? What? What painting are you working on, right? What is this? But then I'd always knock out a painting because it was it was coming up, you know. But I would always start really with um, a concept and and really um, written words and start with that, and then something else would come out of it. And now, because I'm no longer in art school, now I'm finding more freedom and just asking myself, well, what's the best modality for communicating or expressing what I want to express? And so that's how I do it. You, you know, there's this uh, view that to be an artist, you have to only be an artist, right? I mean, that was sort of like Rilke's unfortunate view in um, 
in his letters to a to a poet, right? And you know, I think I think you embody that this is this is not the case. Um, but I'm curious, you know, how your own sense of art has shifted or, or evolved as you have grown as a as a leader, as a coach, as somebody who's worked in in, in the corporate world. Um, because you know, there's that way in which you're bringing your creativity to the corporate world, but how has your sense of yourself as an artist evolved over time? Well, that's such a good question. I think the way that my sense of self as an artist has evolved, because trust me, I have doubted it. I, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine asked me to do a painting for her wedding, who I went to art school with. And when I got ready to, I hadn't painted in like five years. I couldn't even really remember how to handle acrylics. So I ended up in the fetal position on the floor crying. I was like, I lost it. I neglected <laughs> my talent. I can't mix paint anymore. And it was like, so I have had my moments of doubt. And um, what I've come to understand is I think it is important to get traction. I think that at some point in your life, because as far as we know, we don't live forever, at least in this embodiment, right? Whatever your beliefs are, we know that this vessel does not carry us into infinity. So I, for myself, have learned, and I got this, I got this actually from the Fonz. If you know Henry Winkler, who used to be the Fonz, when I was still acting, he overheard me in a makeup trailer talking about all the different things. And he pulled me aside and he was like, choose one and get traction. Once you get traction, then you explore here and you do a little bit here, but you get a team, you get people to help because you and one as one person can't do it all. It took me 10 years to listen to the Fonz, shame on me, but I finally get it now. So I would say as an artist, um, I have learned that there is a thing that I need to get the traction in. And what surprised me and was hard for me to accept was that I really love being a nerd. And I don't find that word offensive. Uh, I love being a nerd. I love I love IO psychology. I love doing research. So that is my creative traction. And then instead of limiting myself and say, I have to paint or I have to write or I have to do research papers or I have to whatever it is, what is in the service of this one area that I've chosen to get really, really, really good at? I am choosing to continually get really, really good at is the best way to get it out in the world. And that's where the artistry for me comes in. But that was a long, that was a long like series of unpeeling the onion because so much ego for me was attached to how I identified and how I introduced myself to other people. Right. You would say that you're an artist. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Or I work at this company. You know, I remember when I first left HBO, that was my first job out of college. And it was like I like leaving a really big breakup. And I realized how high, heavily I identified with that working in that job, especially because I was in publicity. So there was a lot of glamour attached to it. And it was tough. Like, who am I? And, and, and so um, I think that's what, back to your points earlier about the great sabbatical, I think that's where a lot of people, and some people may go, oh shit, actually, I really do love my job. Or, you know, I really did enjoy, you know, sometimes it takes you, it doesn't always mean you're going to go do something drastically different, but being able to ask that question is such a gift. The wisdom of the fawns. I, I, yeah, I, think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll go to a, a question for both of you to kind of, to wrap us up here. 
I wanted to get back to Jai's article, which was the embracing the whole you, you're more than your job. What should work look like, you know, and what, I guess, what role should work play in someone's identity, right? How do you see that, Melissa? And I want to hear from you, Jai, as well. I think in terms of your identity, I think it should be, I'm finding for myself and I, and I find that the people who I meet with who are the most fulfilled with their work is they see their work as a, a facilitator of their, their gifts and their purpose. Um, and some of those gifts, and I think when we talk about gifts and I wonder about that word, because I'm also a big believer that sometimes you develop a real a skill in something simply because you really just enjoy it. You may not be the most talented. I said that in art school all the time. I'm not the best sketch artist, for instance. There are people I went to art school with, with who um, could draw. It looked like a photograph. I, I've never been able to do that, but I worked and I worked in it because I had a passion for it. Right. So I feel like it's having that, that opportunity to, whether it's your natural talents or your nurtured skills, having an opportunity to, to express that and put that in a way that quantifiably to some degree, tangibly supports or serves or puts or is out there in the world, you know, to, um, as work, but that also intangibly satisfies your spirit. That's beautiful. That really resonates with me. And I feel like it uh, hits my nervous system in exactly the right ways. Um, you, you know, what I was thinking about was, I, so I, I'm a technologist and it's very common to run experiments. So, at, you know, any tech company out there, uh, we're, we're running many, many experiments at the same time. And I like that word experiment because it means that you're not committed to that path. You're not committed to, you know, success. There's going to be some learning, whatever, whatever happens. And so I think that one way in which we can adapt our workplaces is to think about our trajectories there as experiments, as a series of experiments, as things that we want to try things we want to learn, because I think we're all lifelong students, you know, and the more ways in which our workplaces can foster that sense of learning and let us experiment as, you know, my six-year-old does so fluidly and gracefully, I, I think that's going to be just a more fun place to work. Yeah, I really resonate with that, the experiment. I mean, that's what's so beautiful is because it never... You get to contribute to something that might be disproven in six years or however long, but it's because of your willingness to experiment in the first place that that growth was was possible, right? That you put that out there, you, whomever. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, that's what I always say at the museum that everything we're doing now is a prototype for what we're going to do next because if you think you're creating a business or have a job that's going to stay the same for years, decades, you're, it's no, <laughs> it is going to be changing and you got to change with it and find the joy in change because that is the constant. I love this conversation. Thank you both so much. Melissa, thank you for being here and sharing your expertise. So appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, to see more of Melissa's work, go to drsteach.com and we'll post the link. Okay, it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first, and I'm so excited. 
that I get to share another weekly dose from the Design Museum team. So this week's weekly dose of good design comes from our very own writer and producer of Design is Everywhere, Amor Yates. Amor is sharing her soda stream, which is the sparkling water maker. She loves sparkling water and was spending upwards of $6 a day grabbing handfuls of sparkling water bottles at the nearby bodega. And that really adds up. Gosh, yeah, that's $42 a week on water, which come on. But now she's got the soda stream. She can make sparkling water at home. It's fizzy. It's economical. Cuts back on plastic waste. And it's actually just fun to make. It also looks really nice on the kitchen counter. It's sleek, aerodynamic. Uh, I know there's a bunch of different soda streams out there and they are doing a really nice job designing them. So check out Soda Stream for all your sparkling water needs. And thank you, Amor. Jai, you're up next. What's on your mind design-wise? Well, I need to get a soda stream, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about important decisions and how it can be hard to be present and have the right distance for those decisions. And so a book that I come back to is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And, you know, I think um, we're, he, he certainly established that we're not rational actors, but, but to know when we're going to be likely to not be rational and to then have countermeasures against those, I think are really, really helpful as we make bets in our life and to figure out how to make those bets um, work well for us with the right kind of setup. Yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, I, I read that book when it came out. I need to reread it <laughs> because classic. I think it's even more yeah applicable now, at least for me where I'm at. That's great. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, share it with me and I'll share it on the pod. You can tweet it at me at Sam Aquilano. And Jai, thank you so much for being here. This is a lot of fun and great conversation. Thank you. It was a blast. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Jai Chakrabarty and Dr. Melissa Steech for joining us. And thank you all for listening. That was a great conversation. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. You can visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. So on Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook by searching Design Museum Everywhere. We have an awesome email newsletter that comes out every week. You can sign up for that on our website and you'll get the latest from Design Museum right in your inbox. Homework for you all listening is to go and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Rating and reviewing, subscribing, it really helps us reach more people, gets us up in those search results so that we can keep doing what we're doing and chatting about the transformative power of design. This episode was written, edited, and produced and included a weekly dose of Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave for the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere. Thanks for being with us and we'll talk again next week. <laughs>